everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, our guest this week is Richard Barone. Now, Richard was the front man in the early 80s to the bongos. And the bongos came out of that great scene in Hoboken, New Jersey, power pop scene of the late 70s, early 80s, that people like the DBs came out of. You remember we had Chris Stamey on here famously? Anyway, uh, the bongos put out a few albums in the early to mid 80s. Got, uh, Drums Along the Mohawk, such a great album. Anyway, Richard eventually went solo, and he's been doing solo stuff ever since, putting out just fantastically high-quality work. They still reunite, the bongos do once in a while, there's no bad blood there or anything, but Richard has just had such an, a rich, full, artistic musical life. Get this, so when he's a kid, he's heavily influenced by people like Mark Bolin, and the whole glam rock scene, Lou Reed, and Andy Warhol, and The Factory, and uh, sexual androgyny, and Bowie, and glitter, and all these things. He decides that's the kind of life he wants to live, and he goes on to befriend these people, and know them, and work with them closely. We talk about all of them in here. Imagine somebody who works with, knows well, and has hung out with Andy Warhol at the factory. We hear those stories in here. Anyway, his music is fantastic. Another thing, he worked closely, uh, like Tony Visconti, Produced one of his albums. Amazing. And they know each other. So Richard has done it all, seen it all, and he talks about it so with so much love and passion. And all of his loves and passions are my loves and passions. So this was a really great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. He's put out a book, too, called Frontman. I have not read that book. I wish I had. But uh, I encourage you all to check that out. And just anything from the bongos, from his solo career, it's all fantastic. He called me from his home in Greenwich Village. Okay, so for starters, I got to tell you when I became a Richard Barone fan, and I remember this very specifically because in 1994, in the summer of 94, I worked at a, a CD store in Provo, Utah called Pegasus, and I was over arranging and alphabetizing the used section, and uh, I was, there was... At the time, you know, the 90s were rife with a lot of samples and and uh, compilation CDs. You know, this album, this label is promoting their latest acts or greatest hits of 1987 or whatever it might have been. When people still bought CDs, there were just thousands of those all over the place. And I picked yeah. up one that came out in May of 1990 called Expando. And uh, mm -hmm. I don't know much about it, but it just had a bunch of songs on it that I knew that I liked. There was uh, the Rave Ups, there was Adrian Ballou, there was Concrete Blonde, House of Love, Social Distortion. Anyway, one of the songs on there that I really liked, but I didn't already know, was River to River by you. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Shadow of me. River to river, I call your name. Waiting for the water to rise. Anything forgotten 
there, you know, there were so many other... One of the fun things about samplers like this is that half the bands on here were never heard from again, you know? But because I listened to this, nothing but this CD for months, they feel very important to me. Now, you obviously have had a big, long career, but I just wanted you to know that River to River really struck me when I bought that CD that day in 1994. And, nice. Uh, yeah, and I've been uh, paying attention ever since. So That was with... Um... That would have been on uh, MCA. That's I was signed to Universal. That's right. And that was an album I did for MCA Records called Primal Dream. And River to River was on that. Yeah. And uh, I've had Don Dixon on here, and he produced that for you. What was it like well, working with Don Dixon? Well, to be honest, Don Dixon did produce... Ha the way I, re I recorded that album, I worked with Don. I had known Don already as a friend. Uh -huh. And I had met him through Mitch Easter. That track was actually produced by Richard Goderer. Was it? Who, okay. Yeah, who uh, had produced the Bongos, my group, my former group mm -hmm. at the time, um, mm -hmm. and also I I loved his work with the Go Go's and with yeah. Richard Hell and the Voidoids and so many mm -hmm. other groups that he had worked with, mm -hmm. including Blondie. So I really liked Richard Goddard and brought him when I got signed to MCA for a while. I uh, that was the first album I did in that cycle, and mm -hmm. uh, I wanted both Richard Goddard and Don Dixon. And, but they did separate songs. So some songs mm -hmm. we recorded by were produced by Richard Goddard and some were produced by Don Dixon on that album. I see. Okay. It was an experiment for me to see how, and I didn't let them hear each other's songs they were producing. So mm. they were working independently of each other. I didn't want it to be like, I didn't want them to try to match or anything mm -hmm. like that. I wanted them to do what they would like to do as producer on the tracks. Mm. So uh, it was a very interesting process. And I love the way that album came out because it's not it's not overly homogenous. It's got the variety comes from there are very different styles of producing. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you say that. Now that I I have never thought about this before, but now that I think about it, I would I guess that makes sense. I um I love Don Dixon, his solo work and yeah. his production work. Me too. But that He's song doesn't too. sound like a very Don Dixon y type song. So that kind of makes no, no, some sense. It's, it's it's very Richard Goddard, you yeah. know. Um, when you work with Goddard, there's a lot of uh, like technique, a lot of recording, like doubling, tripling. I mm -hmm. think with the acoustic guitars, we would do like maybe three or four of them. And uh, uh, it, it's about stacking sounds. Mm -hmm. With Dixon, it's more about, he was uh, often in the control, in the uh, live room, not the control room with us. And with him, it's more of like the live arrangements. And we recorded mostly everything at the same time mm -hmm. uh, with Dixon. So it's the band, is just the band, very few overdubs. Mm. So they're very different styles. I love working with Dixon. Like I said, I had met him before that. I knew him when he, was, uh, he first produced R.E.M.'s first two mm -hmm. albums mm -hmm. and their EP, Chronic Town. And I really liked his work with them, and I knew them. And so it was natural that he would come produce some recordings yeah. with me at that yeah. point. It does make sense. Yeah. yeah that's, uh, so, uh, yeah, I just wanted you to know when I became aware of Richard Barone. Thank you. That, I, Thank that was you. the moment, thanks to this weird compilation CD called Expando. Um, well, thanks to Major League, because see, this is the thing when I ha often have this uh, discussion with people, because my background originally with the Bongos was very pro-indie, like, mm -hmm. you know, doing things mm -hmm. independently. And I, I still do that, and I like to do that. But there's certain benefits with when you do sign to a major label, you do reach more people. And that's an example of mm -hmm. how it reached you. Yeah, is yeah. Because MCA worked it. And, yeah. Um, Sometimes indie labels really don't have the wherewithal to, to get your music out there. That's true. So I like both. I don't like to omit either any any uh, 
any format of, or any or any type of releasing music. I think there's all different ways to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I have a lot more questions about that because that was moving to a, from an indie to a major is very prominent in the bongo story as well as you know. It is. It is. So yeah, and you know we receive and we receive criticism for it, and I think it's really unfounded. I mean, I don't argue it because people are allowed to have opinions, but you know. The idea that we would sign to a major gave us a lot of education uh -huh. and a lot, especially in the recording like technology that we didn't really know. Like we were uh, so limited in what we first did, yeah. and then signing to RCA Records, we were able to uh, have access to some of the best studios in the world mm -hmm. and the best producers, and we could learn from them. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we could learn what we want to do, and you know, it's it's always an experiment. Like what what can we do, and what should right. we do, but. You know, I mean, without that option, we I would not know I would not be able to do what I do now, which is produce right. a lot of different artists because I've got the experience. Right. You know, um, like I said, I was going to bring this up later, but let's do it now, because I don't know. There weren't that many bands that made the transition from indie to major label uh -huh. quite as beautifully as you guys did. That, Thank you. Yes. The you know, the numbers with wings EP is fantastic. And yes, Thank it's you. different than drums along the Hudson, but it's not mm -hmm. worse. There's no drop off in quality there. It's just different. And uh, different. I yeah, we had a different approach and it's a different. We we, we didn't have a, the one thing with the bongos. And when I mentioned bands earlier that Richard Goddard produced and also uh -huh. Don Dixon had produced, and one thing that we did not want to do with the bongos is recreate the same album over mm -hmm. and over again. Mm -hmm. well, so many other bands, that's exactly what they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So many bands just want to re reproduce their success of their debut and just do it until as far as they can. We deliberately did not want to copy ourselves. Mm. So each album that we made and each solo album I've made is very different from the one before. It sure is. Yeah, that's continued on. I'm going to ask you about your last album, Sorrows and Promises, okay. here in a bit, too, because, Thank yeah, you. you're you're very right about that. So. One thing I am curious about, as I mentioned, the Numbers with Wings EP is fantastic. Uh -huh. Why is it Thank just you. an EP? Why did it, why was it not fleshed out to a fully formed album? Now these days, EPs feel like they're they're not so weird anymore. They're not because mm -hmm. no one's going to buy anything anyway. So why not just put your best stuff on a five song EP and put it out there? But back then it was different. Why did you do that? There's a lot. There are many reasons. Okay. Um, should I list them all for you? Would you like me to tell you all of them? <laughs> as many well, as you want. <laughs> all right, well, let me start with the very first thing. When Bongo started, we didn't want to make LPs. We wanted to only make singles and EPs. Mm, true, good point. So when, when we did Drums Along the Hudson, which we call in this country Drums Along the Hudson, that was really a collection of singles and good EPs point. that were yeah. released in England.
that, that was that was our art form. Got for it. Singles and EPs. That so makes sense. when we signed RCA, I suggested we suggested why don't we do an EP? Now there was a mm-hmm. lot of reasons for it technically too. We wanted to have a much bigger sound. And we were very interested in those dance twelve inches that were coming out mm-hmm. at the time mm-hmm. because the grooves are bigger and you get more sound out of the record when the grooves are larger. And if you do a full album, you're squashing all the grooves together. Mm-hmm. And if you do an EP, you can stretch them out, and the sound can be much deeper. And that's what we wanted for Numbers of Queens. We wanted a really deep sound, and one that would translate really well in dance clubs and places where the DJ was playing records, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that was another reason. And the third reason, so I'll tell you three, even though there are more. Mm-hmm. So first reason was that our art form was singles and EPs. Mm-hmm. Second Technically, it would sound better. Mm-hmm. Third, I also simultaneously released an album called Nuts and Bolts, which was mm, good point. A, a duo album with one of my bandmates, James Mastro. On that record are five more originals that could have been on the Bongo VP, and we could have made a whole album. But I, want, I wanted to approach them in a different way, and that was produced with Mitch Easter, mm-hmm. and that was a different kind of record, Nuts and Bolts, from the very acoustic yeah. record. And so those other five songs, and including the songs on James's side, mm-hmm. because we each had a side of Nuts and Bolts, sure. those songs could have been recorded with the bongos, but we decided to do them separately just so they would be unique. So the material was there, but we kind of split it up. So when when Numbers with Wings EP came out, Nuts and Bolts came out just a few months either before or after. Mm-hmm. And those you could people could sort of put them together mm-hmm. and there's mm-hmm. a full album. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't made that connection. You're right. I mean, yeah, Drums Along the Hudson was sort of a, almost a compilation of that it kind was. of thing. I didn't realize that that's sort of where your head was at. I just thought yeah, it was kind of an interesting business decision. Okay. Our head was that makes at sense. making singles. We really, because of the way I was writing the songs, they were each sort of its own freestanding piece. Yeah. And it was a miracle and a happy accident that they all fit well together to make Drums Along the Hudson. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good point. Tell me, what was the inspiration for Numbers with Wings? 
What does that even mean? Where does you know where does this come? Where does this idea come from? It's subconscious. I I don't really. The, the phrase came to me. It came to me spontaneously from writing the music. So the, the, with that song, the music came first. Uh, it was soon after John Lennon had passed. Well, soon after John Lennon was assassinated, I should say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, I was in England alone, mixing drums along the Hudson. Mm. And I kept hearing Yoko's song "Walking on Thin Ice." everywhere mm-hmm. and the music of walking on and i've haunted me and it stayed with me and i kind of was working on uh, on a keyboard mm-hmm. working on some uh, some new music and that uh, the riff of numbers of wings the bass line it's written on the bass line came to me and that was inspired by walking on thin ice wow. by Yoko. good to know and the song is about trying to find forgiveness Mm. And the phrase just came out of the music. I can't mm. really explain it. It could it could mean so many different things, and it does mean many things to me now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've gotten letters from people all over the country and all over the world that really uh, asking me or telling me what they think it means. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and it's hard because I really try to, whenever possible, work in the subconscious. Mm-hmm. I try to just let the music speak for itself and just come out of its own place. Yeah, and with that song, that's a perfect example. It sounded good. I like the phrase. It has certain meanings to me, but it's a basically just a song about forgiveness, and that's why mm-hmm. the, the phrase "I forgive anyone" yeah. is in there. And uh, you know, it's just—it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it's about. It's about a general emotion that may not have a, that may not be able to be fully described. Yeah. Okay. Okay. When you you were talking about the benefits of moving to a major label a minute ago, what were yeah. what did you miss? Is there anything that wasn't as good that you missed about it no. being independent? No. No, because we still did basically what we wanted to do. People right. don't really understand that when we signed to RCA, we still we wanted a big sound. Mm-hmm. We wanted, and when we did the second album for RCA, it was called Beat Hotel. Yeah. You know, we wanted to experiment. I remember we were in the studio. And we were recording guitars at House of Music in New Jersey, and um, 
in the next room was Cool and the Gang, the group oh, at the time. Yes, and they had, yes. you know, they had one of the first guitar synthesizers where you played uh, the guitar, but it was like electronic, and it was mm -hmm. awesome. And I wanted to try it, you know, and I, I did on that album. Mm. There's a lot of experimentation, and we original idea of Beat Hotel was that we were going to use a lot of Brazilian rhythms because we mm. hadn't seen a Brazilian group in New York okay. that we liked. And we wanted to use what they call power samba, like rock samba, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's, that kind of was how we started Beat Hotel. It came out of that idea. Okay. Uh, and just evolved. It's, that became an experiment of what, how far we could take the studio, recording studio. Yeah. We worked in four or five studios at that point, and I, I just was soaking it all in, like learning about what yeah. we could do. Yeah, it's such a great record. Yeah. Uh, to give us an example of where, of that, I'm not a musician, I don't know it yeah. well enough. So what, what, give us an example of a song that where the synth guitar is really killing it. There, there are two that I, could think of, that I can think of right off the bat, for sure. Mm -hmm. One is called Space Jungle. Great song. And the other one is called A Story Written in the Sky. The mm. solo, I believe it's the solo in that. Okay was done on the guitar synth and it's like it had a, it sounds like a string ensemble mm -hmm. it was really cool people yeah. thought i was playing keyboards but it's guitar synth it was it was very primitive but amazing mm. i love both those it was songs made by roland good one the roland the guitar synth okay um yeah. now let me ask you this so you know famously you guys break up shortly after this but not before uh -huh. going to the bahamas to compass point to record an album and when i'm reading that story i'm just thinking first of all it's for Chris Blackwell at Island Records, they're yeah. doing so many fantastic things at that time. And I want to know, what's it like going to the Bahamas to record, to record an album? Well, it was really, it was fantastic. And even though I wrote about it a lot in my book, Frontman, it made it sound mm -hmm. a bit dangerous and bizarre. Mm -hmm. It was that, but it was more fun and amazing to be in a great studio where so many great records came from. Mm -hmm. And great to be in the Bahamas where we could have some time at the beach and just be outside because we had mm -hmm. been on tour for so much. We had been on tour at that point for seven years straight. Oh. And in, on most years, we were doing 300 shows a year. Wow. So it was cool to kind of just have a break and mm -hmm. be together, but not necessarily be always like on stage, you know? Yeah. So we could just jam. And um, and also, like, there was a, a gentleman there who was at the same time uh, either staying, or maybe staying, maybe living there, was Emil Schultz from Kraftwerk, and I was a big I am a big Kraftwerk fan, and yeah. it was really fun hearing about what you know his uh, his stories with Kraftwerk, and also he did the graphics for the uh, when it finally came out. You might have noticed the uh, packaging for Phantom Train, which is that album that we made there. Mm -hmm. It was finally released in 2013 mm -hmm. on an indie label. I don't know. 
all of the graphics were done by Emil Schultz. And he was, it was like a real creative, he was a creative director for us during that time. And fascinating guy. And we would go uh, hunting for pirate treasures during the day. <laughs> and pirate treasures mean, not doesn't mean gold or, and uh, treasure uh-huh. chests. It meant things like pipes or things that pirates had sort of like left in the sand, you know. And it, was, it, was a, it was a very uh, cool thing to kind of have just hang out in, in the Bahamas, you know, yeah. in that way. Who? But there were detriments, oh. too. The, yeah, the go one ahead. thing that would happen at Compass Point was that, um, yeah, sorry to interrupt you. No, you're fine. Continue. One thing about Compass Point um, was occasionally the console would break down. We were using an automated mm-hmm. console, a great one, by the way, called an SSL G-Series. I love it and still use those consoles whenever I can. Mm. But that one had a little, had a knack for breaking down a lot. Mm. And when it did, we were out of commission for the rest of the day. Yeah. And that would go on for a few days because the maintenance people had to come in from the States. Oh, boy. Yeah. So that, those gaps became a little bit tedious. Yeah. To I be can honest. see that. Yeah. 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 Okay. And that started a little bit of discontent. And, you know, it, it eventually it wound down and the sessions kind of ended with the record being unfinished. That's uh-huh. the truth about that. Okay. Okay. Uh, I finally finished it. I edited, re-edited everything, put it together from what all the tapes I had and put it together in 2013 and we released mm-hmm. it then. Yeah. And you, people can find it on Spotify or Apple mm-hmm. music. Oh, and not, no, actually they can only find it. Maybe it's just, maybe on Apple music. I'm not sure if it's on Spotify right now. It's it not. will be though. Yeah, it it's be. not on Spotify. I was going to mention that. Be. Okay. Thank you for reminding me. It will yeah, be. Yeah. It will be. Okay. But uh, they can. You can. I think Apple Music may have it. I hope. Yeah, um, I'm curious. One other thing about Compass Point. Who else was there while you were there recording? Well, the two other acts that were actively making albums were ACDC and Julio <laughs> Iglesias. <laughs> That's great. Oh, it's great. Now, if that doesn't inspire madness, I don't know what does. There was <laughs> madness. So good. Madness did occur, and I think part of it was the screaming amps of ACDC during the day, mm-hmm. and then the later afternoon of Julio Iglesias, and you know, it was just we were right in the middle there somehow yeah. with the bongos recording. Yeah. Oh, it's the best. Now, forgive me. Whenever a guest comes on here, if they have a book and I know about it, I. Do my very best to try and read it before we do the interview. This happened yeah. quicker than I thought it would with you, and so I haven't had the chance. That's and okay. so it's called, for anyone who doesn't know, it's called Frontman Surviving the Rockstar Myth. But but I did start poking around and was kind of like Googling snippets of it and stuff like that. You, I hope this is okay to ask. It was in your book. Yeah. You refer to yourself in there at one time as a gay clone dude. What is that? <laughs> Oh, well, I don't know if I refer to myself as that. I think I referred to other people. There was a certain gay stereotype, which was a clone, and that was a type of, um, a type of, you know, let me, let me put it to you this way. Okay. Sometimes Freddie Mercury dressed like a clone. Hmm. It's huh. a type of, it's a type of look. It's a, it's a, it's a thing. It's not just me. I didn't make it up. Oh, I didn't make it up. I didn't know that it's term, a, and I thought is Richard describing it's, himself? It's, what is that? What does no, that mean? No, no, I don't okay. think I was describing myself. I don't think oh. I've ever uh, done that. It's a oh. type of. It's a, in the seventies, especially in the eighties. Okay, there was a type of. It was an archetype, a gay. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. In fact, you know, right. it's, it's just the fact of life. Sure. There were 
what they call clones. I didn't make it up. They mm. refer to themselves as that in a way. Okay. And they, you know, it's a, it's a look. Okay. It's a look. Okay. It involves it involves very tight jeans. It involves sometimes muscle t-shirts. Uh-huh. It involves a look that is inspired, perhaps, by the artwork of Tom of Finland. Hmm. It's just—it's an archetype. Okay. The back of a, you know, on the back of Lou Reed's Transformer album. Yeah, one of the best. There's a, yes, that there's guy. A male, there's yes. a male. That, that image. That's the, a clone. That's called a clone. Okay. I know and the exact image like you're talking about. It's okay. a uniform look. It's like a uniform yeah. look. And I don't mean it detrimentally. I mean, no. I think it's cool and i i self I, any kind of sexual identity is something that i hold in as sacred everyone mm. has their own right and i'm i'm not one to criticize anything mm-hmm. but i'm saying that was a that was like a type that mm-hmm. was a type of that time there's not as much of that now yeah but it was a proud archetype okay and you you can see it on the back of blue reach yep. transform i know exactly what you're talking about Yep. Okay. Yeah, that was a term that I that struck me. I didn't know it, and I wasn't yeah. sure what it meant exactly. Um, That's it. It's, it's that. It's that look. You know. And again, okay. it's a visual. It okay. doesn't mean the person is any different. It means no. that the look that they chose to wear, that, that outfit, and the the look. Yeah. Okay. Now, I, speaking of which, glam rock mm-hmm. and especially, and I'm thinking not just glam rock, but you know, Warhol's factory and his stable of kind of freaks and superstars like. Candy yeah. Darling and Billy Name and Taylor Mead and Holly Woodlawn. These are people who mean a lot to you. It's very clear that that not just the sound, but the whole lifestyle is something that I'm imagining was very alluring or very provocative to you as when I don't know for how long, maybe your whole life. What yeah. was the magic of that? Because I feel some of that too. One of my favorite books of all time is called Warhol in the 60s. And yeah. it talks about the creation of the factory and him being shot and all the personalities. They're just so fascinating. What what did it what did it do for you? Well, a lot of things. One, it's such a rich cultural history there. It is number yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I love the like I said about holding sexual identity in such high regard. Mm-hmm. I love the freedom. That, that, that was mm-hmm. exhibited at the factory with people's with their self-expression. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great because over the years I've gotten to know many of the of those characters, and I got mm-hmm. I've gotten to work with, for instance, Joe D'Alessandro a few years mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, they were groundbreakers. They a mm-hmm. lot of our sexual freedom now was it exists because they started it back mm-hmm. then in the mm-hmm. late '60s and through the '70s. A lot of sexual freedom. And I don't mean just in sexual activity, but in sexual identity. Right. And I just, I, even as a, as a young person, I found that to be noble mm-hmm. and also fascinating and intriguing and inviting. That's why when yeah. I came to New York, my first stop was to go to the factory mm-hmm. where I got to meet Andy and some of the folks there. And I was just a kid. I was still a teenager. Yeah. But... I just wanted to experience a bit of that, and it stay, it's always stayed with me. And it was such a thrill when the Bongos started performing, and Andy would come see us, or Sylvia Miles, or mm. a lot of his people that were sort of in his circle mm-hmm. would come to the shows that we did. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a real special thing for me. Yeah, I bet. I hope, if this is too pointed a question, you tell me, is sexual mm-hmm. fluidity something that is, is that how you how you identify as well? Were you drawn I to do, the whole thing? I do, I do. Okay. I was drawn to it, and I really, and I have to tell you that I don't, 
you know, I just, I think that that's, that's part of me for sure. Okay. Okay. And when I, and it's, it, it's reflected in my music in the way that it's my, my music tends to be gender free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good point. You know, okay. it, it, it tends to be gender free. I, you know, when I talk about Barbarella, it's, or, or, <laughs> you know, you know, certain character, it's really for other reasons. It's like uh-huh. a, it's a symbol or something like that. But in general, I love my music to be as gender free as possible. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I would imagine somebody that has to have been for someone at a, at a young age, part of the draw is that like, you know, the freedom and artistically, sexually, however you want to define it. And it seems like, you know, something that I think is really interesting about you, Richard, is that you, you know, I have favorite artists too, but I don't show up at their homes and become part of their clique. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't, I, I live here in Denver in my, you know, domesticated house with my wife and kids. But mm-hmm. you went, you, you saw a vision of who you wanted to be and who you wanted to be with while you were creating that person and you you became them that's not thank everybody you. does that you know what i mean thank you thank you yeah so tell us some stories about warhol and the factory i find that whole you know how people say like if there was ever a concert you could have seen that you know yeah. from before your time the yeah. velvet you know exploding plastic inevitable would be one of those for me tell me a story about what life was like in there well, look, let me tell you that I, I wish, I only wish I would have been there during those days yeah. because I, I came into the scene late. It mm. was almost the 80s by the time I got to New York. It was yeah. the end of the 70s, and I was, like I said, I was a teenager. And by that point, Andy had already been, don't forget, he was shot, mm-hmm. you know, many mm-hmm. years before. Yeah. And the, the uh, so the factory that I saw was the bulletproof glass mm. protective a place where he could do his work, but mm-hmm. he didn't have the the scene that the Velvets came out of. I I mm-hmm. love that, and you know who's taught me a lot about that. He just recently passed away, but I was really lucky. I've been very fortunate in my life to have amazing mentors, mm-hmm. and one of my more recent ones was Jonas Mikas, and that was Andy's Ooh. cinematographer during yeah. many of those years. Yeah, and he was very instrumental in the Velvet Underground's development, especially with the visuals when they, you know, that were projected on the Velvets mm-hmm. while they performed. Right. So Jonas t- taught me a lot about that and showed me so much footage. In fact, if you go on YouTube and if you find my video for my version of Blue Reed's song, All Tomorrow's Party,
the footage was that video was made by Jonas Mikas for me Ooh. from from footage of the Velvets that he filmed back in 66 and 60, I believe 67, I think okay. uh, 66 and 67. Okay. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it, that, <laughs> it's priceless stuff. And I believe it. It is, it's the roots of my own musical taste, yeah. you know, it's the Velvet Underground. So, yeah. but my, yeah. when I came to the factory, and my first thing that I saw was, of course, I noticed, and I didn't, I was too naive to understand why everything was bulletproof at first. I, I wasn't that aware of his, as mm -hmm. a kid, I wasn't, I knew that he had been shot, but I didn't re kind of realize the extent of his mm. continued damage from that, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't understand all the bulletproof glass at first. It just didn't, re I don't know, maybe, like I said, naive, naivete or something, but I didn't yeah. get it. And right. then I realized, wow, he's behind glass. But, you know, you could, but you, Andy was protected, but it was really fun to see him at work with mm -hmm. his silk. He was doing silk screens. He was doing a series at the time of hammers and sickles. Mm, interesting. And I was able to hang out and kind of watch them work. Wow. And he, you know, he couldn't do too much because he couldn't really, he couldn't even sort of bend over well to, to do the silk really? screen that was done on large floor canvases. So he had helpers, but he did some, you know, huh. but yeah, he was really shot up, you know, when he got yeah. shot. Yeah. I bet. I bet he loved have you. Ever seen, have you ever seen those scarred photos of his chest? No, you can see that. Yeah, no. if you go, Richard Abaddon photographed him in a portrait, Ooh. like, and you can sort of see the damage, and it's, okay. it's just terrible. So, yeah. yeah, so he, but it was, you know, they were great to me, and he was very uh, elusive, you know. Yeah. I met him, then again, years later, when, um, with, I believe it was with Simon Le Bon of uh, Duran mm. Duran, mm. and then we kind of reunited, because then, then at that point, the you know, years, a few years later, the Bongos were, you know, performing on the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, then yeah. I met Andy again, and he started coming to our shows, and it was, he was really out and about. I bet, he, yeah. He was out, and he would carry copies of Interview Magazine with him, which was his magazine, <laughs> and just hand them out, like self-promotion. Right. The kind of thing people would do sort of now with, with the sort of, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of self-promotion. He right. did it so well then, you know. <laughs> That's wild. I, uh, I would imagine he was flirting with you like crazy. I hear these stories of him calling. He apparently loved to talk on the phone for hours yeah. and hours and hours. And, and I think sometimes he would record these conversations. Oh, I'm sure. Did you ever have an instance where Andy would call you on the phone and just you two chit-chatting for hours and hours? No, but the closest thing is when Lou Reed started calling me. Ah! <laughs> and that was even more, well, you know, because he would, would he found my number because, uh, uh, I had met Lou in a record store and I was about 18 mm. and I was buying a, uh, no, no, sorry, a guitar store, not a record store, a music mm. store that sold mm. guitars. Lou was in there and we met briefly, but a couple of years later and things happened fast at that time for me because when the bongos started playing, we got signed pretty fast. Mm -hmm. So a few years later, we were on the same label as Lou Reed. Very nice. Yeah. Good point. And Sylvia, his wife mm. brought drum, uh, numbers with wings to him. Ooh. And he really liked it, and we started a phone. We started a phone friendship uh -huh. that lasted until two weeks before he passed. Oh, oh man! Now, when you say and, lasted, you didn't get in a fight two weeks before. That's just the last time you spoke, right? Because okay. he was too ill. Yeah. And oh, the man. last time, two weeks before he passed away, I went to an event. I, I worked with Mick Mick Rock, who was his was mm -hmm. his photographer also of course he did the book cover by the way for a front man oh nice. and uh, and okay. i 
I've posed for him many times. I'm in his book called Exposures, and I am nude in it. Mm. Uh, it's a great book, by the way. But I'm the only one that's really exposed. I told okay. him it's mistitled because <laughs> I'm the only one who actually is exposed in the book. Nice. <laughs> but Lou was fantastic with me. No, we never fought. Only one time he raised his voice to me, but it was it was quickly resolved. Mm. I was producing an event in which he performed. Yeah. And there was a technical issue that I didn't have the answer for. And he got very mad at me. So I immediately learned I better have the answers. And I did get it and call him back in 10 minutes and everything was okay. Good. Yeah. But okay. that that's a different story. But yeah, my, my, I, I didn't have conversations with Andy that way. It was, it was just like seeing him at the factory. Luckily, they let me in and out of there and it was great. But, but I'll tell wow. you that. You know, he was extremely quiet, too, and I'd see Andy mm-hmm. Warhol. I mean, he was yeah. extremely quiet. But Lou was, like, immense. He was truly, like, a technical guru to me and taught mm-hmm. me so much. And when I made my solo debut at Carnegie Hall in 2008, mm-hmm. Lou helped me with that show and made a video of himself, which we did together, of him reciting I'll Be Your Mirror by the Velvet. Really? And then I was able to perform it on stage while he's on the screen behind me reciting it. No way. Is that on YouTube? That, uh maybe. Oh, man. Maybe. Okay. It would be a it would be a uh, like a, a fan video, but yes, yeah, I think yeah. it is. Okay. I think there's a fan video of that. Yeah. Fantastic. Wow. Again, just going back. I mean, you made it happen, Richard, you know? I mean, you you lived <laughs> your you. dream. That is that is the ultimate dream for any human being. I want to ask you specifically too about Mark Bolin and T-Rex because yes. obviously they're a big part of your life what what was it about mark was it the was it going back to the same kind of glittery yeah. androgyny but also killer glam rock and roll that was you know provoke provocative for him too yeah you know that that combination to me was unbeatable the idea mm-hmm. of his ambiguous gender yeah uh-huh. <laughs> identity all right now when we knew he's a guy we knew right. he's a uh, male, but you know the gender identity being ambiguous, mm-hmm. the sexual identity, I should say, I guess mm-hmm. that ambiguity was intriguing to me at mm-hmm. age whatever fourteen. Also, I love, you know, the guitar playing, his particular style of guitar playing, mm-hmm. his concise soloing on records, mm-hmm. the masterful production of Tony Visconti, who, as you know, I've worked with for the last, I'd say, twenty yep. years now. I've got questions um, about that too. Yep. Uh, that combination, those records, the way that they had sort of George Martin Beatles production mm-hmm. values, strings, and you know, just the right amount of overdubbing, and and also spontaneity, uh, it was just un- unbeatable for me. And yeah. I do feel that there's certain originals in rock and roll. Mm-hmm. There are some that are that are imitators, and some that are originals. And I really feel that that Mark Boland was a true original. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know. Yep, I would say so too. I am curious. One thing that's um, that I, in getting ready to talk to you, I'm going back over your catalog, you know, under the microscope and thinking about it in new ways. And one thing I, I was struck by is that with as much as it's obvious that you love glam rock and probably specifically Mark Bolin, your yeah. personal style I would not say is even very glammy. In fact, no. I was I was listening to Glow again, and uh-huh. there's your beautiful cover of Girl, and it's followed immediately by Silence Is Our Song, the song that you write with Paul Williams, of all people. I want to yeah. hear this story. <laughs> you kept your distance, yes, you tried to behave, but you're fine for two survivors out of 
And it's so gorgeous. And I thought, you know, I know that Richard loves Mark. Mark could never write Silence is Our Song. So you do, you take these influences and you go in a completely different direction. It's not like it's even, I wouldn't even put you in the same genre. And yet I know how much that means to you. But you managed to sort of eclipse, I don't know, their songwriting in certain ways too. First of all, tell me the story of Silence is Our Song. And then tell me how you stumbled on your own sound, this chamber pop sound. Oh, sure. I'll be happy to. Well, the reason the Silence is Our Song exists is because I guess in the year around 2000, I performed, maybe it was 2001, 2001, I performed in a tribute to Paul Williams concert. And it was really fun. I performed Mm -hmm. a song that Tiny Tim and David Bowie both covered by Mm -hmm. Paul called Fill Your Heart. Mm -hmm. Fill Your Heart with Love Today, Don't Play the Game of Time. Yeah, Hunky Dory. Yeah, I love it. Yes, it's a Hunky Dory. It's also on God Bless Tiny Tim. Mm -hmm. That's where, that's, First, that was the first cover of any Paul Williams song mm. by Tiny Tim. So I loved it, and I did it in the show. And Paul really liked my arrangement, which was partially the Tiny Tim arrangement and partially the Bowie arrangement. Mm. And he told me that he loved my voice, and he told mm. me he wanted to write a song for me. Mm. And I was, of course, thrilled. Yes. So I had planned, we planned to... <laughs> I was flying to LA on September 11, 2001. Mm. That wow. day, that evening, I had a flight book to Los Angeles to meet with Paul to mm. write silence to write a song. We didn't know yeah. what it was going to be called. So obviously, he was also flying. He got stranded. I, I got just stranded in New York here, mm. mm-hmm. and he ended up being grounded in Houston. Mm. Wow. So it took us months to finally be able to get together. I did you know, get to L.A. And when we wrote the song, it was inspired by 9-11. Mm-hmm. And mm. I didn't realize that. that. Is, okay. Silence is Our Song is, the premise of it originally were, are two people that are spirits Ooh. that perished in 9-11. That's what the original way that that was written, and that's what the point of view is. That's why that's the, I think that the second verse actually has those clues in it. Uh, beyond the season of goodbyes and of times we could trust 
we write our names we, and, and, and make a heart in the ashes and dust. Mm. Wow. Write the heart. I believe that's his word. That's, that's yeah. the lyric. I didn't, write the, I didn't write the lyrics. So I wrote the music. I wrote the music. I rocked. It was a fantastic writing session. I was yeah. in Paul's house in Los Angeles with all of his awards and, you know, yeah. gold records and platinum and everything of all of his great hits. And I was walking around with my guitar playing these chords and he would write the lyrics. Wow. He, uh, I am so grateful that he is sort of having this, I don't know, it's like, it's not a second act, but this sort of resurgence, yeah. you know, he was so ever present there in the seventies and early eighties and then disappeared. And now yeah. he, because of the, you know, getting over drugs and everything, cleaning his mm -hmm. life up, he's back on his own terms. And he just seems like yeah. this force for good. Every time I ever hear him he interviewed is. or anything like that, he seems like the most humble, lovely man I can imagine. He is. He's. It's very special. He's almost saint-like to me. Yeah. Um, he does. I. I meet. We meet all the time for lunch, and he is a gr a great. Uh, also, advocate for the arts. Yeah. And he yes. and I both. Because I'm on the board of directors for the Grammys, mm. and he, of course, is the president of ASCAP. Mm -hmm. And we meet because, especially during the time we're trying to pass the Music Modernization Act that passed last year, mm -hmm. we we. Would, we'd be in consultation because we met with senators and, and Congress people about getting that law passed. Mm. And he was very much an advocate, as he was for the new, uh, this act for the COVID-19 relief mm -hmm. fund, mm. Uh, that he advocated for the Cases Act, it's called. Nice. Which is that musicians are also can apply for, say, unemployment insurance during this time when we really can't do anything because everything is closed. Yeah. yeah. So Paul Williams is a true advocate for the arts, a gentleman and a saint, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Now, speaking of people that I really love, going back to the Glow album produced by Tony Visconti, you mentioned you guys have been friends forever. How did, yeah. again, I've, you're just an, ex an example to me of someone who realized every dream they had. How did you become friends uh -huh. with Tony Visconti? Well, you're right about that being a dream. And he knows yeah. that um, when I was, like I said, I started getting into T-Rex when I was about 14. Mm -hmm. And I noticed Tony Visconti's name, mm -hmm. and especially that it sounded a bit Italian, and my name is also Italian, mm. and it just somehow resonated with me. And um, I, it, I remembered his name so uh, much, and I would also notice uh, soon after noticing his name on T-Rex Records that he also produced David Bowie, mm -hmm. and also produced Mary Hopkins, yep. And Badfinger, his name was on all these records that I loved at the time, you know, yeah. and, and after and before. Right. Uh, so I said, well, that's who I want to work with. That was on my mind. Mm -hmm. When the Bongos were signing to RCA, they asked us who we would like to be producer. And I suggested Tony Visconti. Mm -hmm. The problem was he was in England at, England at the time. And the RCA label wanted us to record in New York City. Uh. Tony wanted to record it at his own studio in London. Called, mm -hmm. At the time called Good Earth Studios. Yep. So there was not, neither side would relent. Mm. Like RCA said, no, we want to keep them here. Tony said, I want to record in my own studio. So we didn't do it. Mm. So it took me a while to meet Tony. It was finally in the 90s, there was a tribute to and we met at the rehearsal. Okay. And we started talking and hit it off right away. And he suggested that we write some songs together, which we started to do. So and even in the 90s, we had started to write songs together. A lot of them on the Glow album, we had been writing for a while. Like they kind of, we kept adding to it. That's how that album happened. 
it just mm-hmm. sort of growing on its own on its own steam, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we it came out of the songwriting. So when we did that album, we would we would write a song and just start recording it immediately. Sometimes I got to have a basic guitar and a vocal, and then we would just build on it. We played all the instruments ourselves except for the drums, and that oh. was Dennis Dykin from the Smithereens who played drums. Oh, I, I, so. okay. I Smithereens <laughs> are another one of my favorite bands of all time, and you being from I New Jersey, them. I was going to ask you I about love them, them too. I love them yeah. too. I love them too. Yeah. So yeah, that was that's how we made that album. It was just Tony and me and and um, and Dennis Dykin, you know, basically. Oh. Goodness. And I love that. I really love Glow. I love the yeah. sound of it. We had some great synthesizers. We had some of Bowie's stuff around the studio. Yeah, the stylophone, had, right? The space oh, yeah, we, well, they, piece that my stylophone. We had, yeah, because Tony bought me a stylophone during that time. We oh. each had matching stylophones. And uh, <laughs> he plays <laughs> a great stylophone on the song on Girl. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's it's a fantastic record. I love that album. And it was a dream come true. Yeah. It really was a dream come true, literally. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, I was going to save it for later, but do you have any Smithereen stories? I mean, you guys probably came up around the same time. I love the Smithereen. Me too. In fact, you were talking about River to River earlier when you started this Mm -hmm. interview. Mm -hmm. And when that album came out, I was on tour with the Smithereens. Oh. We would. I was the special mm. guest. It was the, and it was so exciting for them because that was their first when they had their first hit. I guess with a girl like you. Yeah, yeah. And um, they yeah. during the tour. I mean, they ended up getting going on SNL, and it was so we had to take the night off. Like we we watched them on TV that night because they had to fly from wherever city we were in, and they went on the show. And my my band, I had a great band with me on that tour also. Yeah. And um. We watched them on TV. It was so exciting because that was our our friends, you know. So oh. yeah, we toured we toured together. It was complete madness. That is great. I love it. It was a rock so and much. roll. It was a rock and roll tour like you've never seen. I think I can imagine what that is. Okay. Yeah, it was like yeah. Dublin in the seventies or something. Yeah. Except we didn't have a we didn't have a private jet. We had two tour buses, but uh-huh. but it was like a rock tour with a capital R. That is great. That is great. Yeah, yeah I had Jim on here a few years ago, and it's one of my proudest moments just being able to and it was just a few weeks before pat 
passed away. And uh, um, uh, yeah. yeah, we were talking in there about both of us kind of expressing some concern about his health and what does it I mean? And what are you guys going to do? And he's like, I don't know. We're just kind of still figuring it out. And then Pat was gone like six weeks later. It was just tragic. It was so sad. Yeah. It was it's still, it was still shocking, even though I knew how ill he was. And we had, we had, I've known Pat for most of my life too. Yeah. And um, I, we had done recently done a performance together, Pat oh. and I, oh. and, I knew he was so ill, you know, and I, yeah. but he still kept going as long as he could. Yeah. It, even with that, it was an absolute shock when I heard he passed away. Mm -hmm. Same. He, um, I had seen them in con, I've seen him several times, but I saw them just a few months earlier and Pat, he had an arm in a sling and he couldn't move very well. And so like somebody would have to come on the stage and hand him a Pepsi in a glass with a straw up to his lips oh. so he could suck on it. And, oh. um, it was, but he was in good spirits, you know, he had a yeah, good, I know. He, had, he always had a good personality. And I, I think we were Facebook friends or something. And he posted something like the day before saying, you know, guys, I'm starting to feel better. In fact, I, I have a list of movies that I'm going to watch over the next few days. What do you guys think of this list? And then the next day he was gone. And uh, oh, it was that just was so heartbreaking. Yeah. It, was, it was shocking. You know, yeah. it was really shocking, even though we knew yeah. that he was ill. Yeah. And I did shows that he, he was still doing benefit. I do a lot of benefit concerts. And I he know. was on them with many, many times with me. And he, yeah. he was still doing them quite, mm -hmm. quite late into the, into the illness. He was still yeah. doing them, you know? Yeah. So anyway, yeah. he's, he's one that will not be forgotten. And nope. it's great that the smithereens continue with Marshall Crenshaw and others as the vocalist. Agreed. I love, yep, yeah, I totally agree. Um, okay. Now Bowie is my Mark Bolin. So oh. I'm imagining your paths have crossed over the years. Oh, yeah. Tell me, well, yeah. can, do you have a favorite Bowie story you can share? I have many. There's too many, but I will say that the first time I met him, I was just um, very happy that he was not much taller than I am. Ah. I was, I was imagining him as being so tall, and I met yeah. him uh, in a club in New York, very casually. I just turned to the person next to me, and it was David Bowie, and I said, "Excuse me, Mr. Bowie," and he looked at me and said, "Yes," and I was just mm. so happy that he wasn't too tall because mm. I always think I'm like the shortest rock uh, front man around. You know, <laughs> of course I'm not because Iggy's very short. You're true. But yeah, David, uh, I got to meet off and on through the years, but most memorably through Tony Visconti, I was asked mm. to sing a backup on a few songs. Really? Like and, what? Well, like unreleased. Unreleased stuff? Oh. Yeah. Is this, this is this like the toy album or is this something different? Well, during toy I got to go to the sessions, I'll tell you, I'll tell you really? that. Oh man. But the singing happened between Toy and Heathen. Oh man. Yeah. Oh. Does that I mean is that that's bittersweet then. On one hand you get to collaborate with your no. with a hero and the other it never sees the light of day. Well, you know, it's on they're on YouTube. Okay. Okay. And I do believe that they will now be mm -hmm. released in different, yeah. in some form at some yeah. time. But, you know, I, everything in its time. I mean, I yeah. don't mind when things are not released. You have to realize I had a Bongos album that, didn't, that was not released for over 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good point. That's true. I don't mind when things are not released. I, yeah. You know, when we do music, it's to me, it's like you get it down, on the, especially because I love recording, the actual mm -hmm. art of recording. Mm -hmm. To me, it's about making that recording. Yeah. Whether it becomes a public issue or just privately mm -hmm. known, it's still recorded. Yeah. Okay. And the joy of it is doing it. Yeah. It's always that for me. And that's what people also don't understand about my, like, either 
uh, like why sometimes my, my recordings may not be in the top 10 or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, mm-hmm. how do I feel about that? Well, I, I, I would love it to be all number one records, mm-hmm. but just the fact of making it is what I love, the process. Yeah. I love yeah. the process of making records. I believe you it. Know? I believe That's it. really true for me. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, good. If it's a hit, great. If it's not, it's still great because I love doing it, you know? <laughs> right. And, um, and with the Bowie stuff, yeah, unreleased, but maybe someday, yeah. Good. Okay. So speaking of Bowie, I got to ask, you cover The Man Who Sold the World on Cool Blue Halo. not too far off from the version that Nirvana would do on Unplugged eventually. Did you ever, do you think that they were influenced by you? Do you know one way or the other? <laughs> yes. You do know? <laughs> yes. Tell me. <laughs> well, I know because they came to see me. Oh, really? Yes, they were in the audience at Backstage in Seattle when I did that uh, show in 19, uh, 1988. Oh, my gosh. They came backstage to meet me. Really? Yeah. Really? So, okay. Yeah. Well then, uh, I mean, when you saw that then on their Unplugged album, you had to know, oh, I, I'm the one who sparked that. Well, the first time was not a visual. The first time I heard it on the radio uh-huh. and I was shopping in one of my neighborhood, I don't know, health food store or something like that. And I heard uh-huh. the man, I heard the cello. I heard the man who sold the world. I thought it was my version. Really? <laughs> then when the vocals hit, it's like, wait a minute, that's not me. And I, it was the most, it was the strangest feeling I've never had before or since. Oh, is that like, wait a minute, it's my record, but it's not my voice. Right. <laughs> and that was Kurt. Uh, you know, but people often, this often comes up on Twitter for me. People write to me. Just this week, people have been writing about that. Mm. You know, I'm not in any way upset about it because I didn't write the song. Yeah. And, and Kurt and the guys have just as much a right to cover that song mm. as I did. Yeah, and it's, since they were asked to do it on the unplugged show, it's obviously going to be somewhat like mine because mine was unplugged too. Right, right. and you know, it it I don't I don't have no hard feelings. I know um, I know some of the guys in that group, and mm-hmm. you know, it's never been any kind of hard feelings at all. Okay. I'm I'm happy they did it. Good. It, it is very similar to my arrangement, and I mm-hmm. did have a local that was a local hit in Seattle for me. Mm, That's really? what made it ironic to me because oh. when Cool Blue Halo came out in 1987, that song was not the single. The single was uh, Cry Baby Cry. Ah. Cry Baby Cry. Make your mother sigh. She's old enough to know better. The king of Marigold was in the kitchen. 
cooking breakfast for the queen. The queen was in the parlor playing piano for the children of the king. Cry, baby, cry. Make your mother sigh. She's old enough to know better. So cry, baby, cry. The king was in the garden picking flowers for a friend who came to play. The queen was in the playroom painting pictures for the children's holiday. Cry, baby, cry. Make your mother sigh. She's old enough to know better. So cry, baby, cry. The Duchess of Cacaldi so that was actually the radio single. We did, we did a special edit for that. I overdubbed a little bit more percussion, and we made a radio single out of Cry Baby Cry. Okay. That was the song that people were supposed to be playing on the radio, except for Seattle, mm. in which they were playing in heavy, 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 the HHH rotation, they called it. Mm-hmm. They were playing The Man Who Sold the World. Mm. That makes sense. And so you know, you... That, station, that station was KJET. And that was a, that was one of the first alternative rock stations. Oh. And of course, that's Nirvana station they would be yeah. listening to. Right. You know, you saying that it it reminds me a little bit of Jeff Buckley's version of Hallelujah. Because oh. the original well, the original Leonard Cohen version doesn't sound anything like the version that we know of now. John that's Cale right. did a version and then Jeff Buckley does John, of his variation on John Cale's and every version of Hallelujah that's ever been done since, and it's arguably even overplayed, are yeah. variations on Jeff Buckley's version, not a, the original Leonard Cohen version. And that's kind right. of, so your version of Man Who Sold the World sort of fits in that logic. You know what I mean? You're right. You're right. Yeah. yeah. So really, with Jeff Buckley, that so it's removed. It's really Kale to yes. Buckley. Yes. To, yeah. It, it really is like so. It's really Kale's version that we're more familiar with. I yes. understand. Yep, you're the John Cale of the man who sold the world. <laughs> well, I do know John Cale, so at least, at least I know him. Yeah. Good, good but, point, uh, yeah. But, uh, um, you know, that's it's true. But, you know, it, no, no hard feelings. It was all great, and yeah. it's a great song. But, you know, it's so funny, because when Tony, I, I, I brought this up to Tony once, because Conti, who, of course, produced the original record. Mm-hmm. And I said, Tony, look how they kind of ripped me off. You know, I, I wasn't I wasn't bitching about it. I was just mm-hmm. saying, uh, l- listen to this. And he didn't, he didn't, he, he didn't hear it that way. Oh. He didn't think, so he just thought they were just doing the song. Huh. Well, so, you know, but it's really. I think it was probably hearing you. I mean, they're different, but hearing you do an, a, a, an unplugged version, I'm sure sparked the idea that they could right. then do it too. In yeah, their own exactly. way. But that was yeah. the, where the seed came from, I think. You know, I think so too. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's so cool. It's a great tune. I, I love playing it. Yeah. I love playing it. I still want to know I'll play that. Not, not as often as I did, but, uh, I, I I'm going to bring it back into my set soon because cool. I'd love it. Good. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about your last album, Sorrows and Promises, Greenwich Village in the 1960s. Uh, you obviously live in Greenwich Village and like we've said with glam rock and Mark Bolin, it, from what I can tell, it seems like something that really informs who you are and when and why you create. And uh, this, I imagine, this album is sort of a little bit of a love letter back to your, to where you live. And it came out in 2016. Yes. Am I right about any of that? You're right about all of that. And there's okay. more to the story. Okay. It's not just a love letter to where I live. I do live right in the middle of Greenwich. I live on Waverly Place, right in the middle of Greenwich Village. But it's also a love letter 
to the idea of the singer-songwriter itself, mm. like what is, which is what I do. That came, that was born in Greenwich Village during that era, mm. mm-hmm. and it it was a it was a, a I guess the word is sea change in the mm. music business and in popular music around the world that artists would write their own songs. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't that common before that, like mm-hmm. a, as a thing, as an unmasked thing. Yeah. Before that, most acts would get their songs from either song factories like the Brill Building or from Broadway shows. Maybe they would write one or two songs, maybe, but most art, most performers did not depend on their own catalog right. or their own self-expression as being their art until the Greenwich Village singer-songwriter scene that happened out of the folk revival. Mm-hmm. Yes. See what I mean? Yeah, I do. So, so like Dylan and these others, these were groundbreakers for that, just for that. It's like, symbolically, it's also expression of First Amendment rights. Like, it's my right to say what I feel. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be that it's a political song, because mm-hmm. I think, you know, per- sexual politics, relationship politics, all of that counts as self-expression and First Amendment uh, free speech. Yeah. You know, Yes. What Janice Ian would write about, you know, and yes. what Dylan would write about, Phil Oaks. Phil Oaks was the most, mostly the most political of all of them, I think. But Paul Simon, you know, his descriptions of the village, you know, it, it, it was self-expression to the max, and that became what, what we think of as popular music. Yes, good point. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it all kind of, you know, it, uh, yeah, that, people breaking away from, needing a, uh, a the machine or the corporation to yeah. inform them uh, started there. You're right. I, I want to mention it? my favorite song on the album is Pack Up Your Sorrows. No use crying, talking to a stranger, naming the sorrows you've seen. Too many bad times. Too many sad times and nobody knows what you mean But if somehow you could pack up your sorrows And give them all to me You would lose them, I know how to use them Give them all to me sorrows and give them all to me you would lose them i know how to use them give them all to me and oh I, thank you yes and and i think it might be because I don't know that much about it. It didn't sound familiar to me. I probably didn't know the original, or if I did, I mm-hmm. it hasn't stuck with me. Tell me about, is it Richard Farina? Tell me about... Farina. Farina. Okay. He was a great, you know, lyricist and poet and novelist. In okay. fact, his novel had just come out before he died in a motorcycle accident. Uh, he was Dylan's 
I would say, well, you know, Dylan had a lot of competition in those yeah. days because all the singer-songwriters and writers and poets would all come to Greenwich Village. This was the hotbed. <laughs> Dylan was, did become the most famous, but he had competition. And two people, two both men that were, or, you know, young men that mm-hmm. were competing with Dylan in a way to outright each other were Richard Farina and Phil Oaks. Yeah. Okay. Now, Phil Oaks was very much wanting to write about the Vietnam War and war issues and that type of subject a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Richard Perenia was very, like, symbol, uh, I guess, like a symbolist poetry, and mm. he was very similar to how Dylan was working. And if you can find some amazing songs from Richard Perenia, I would recommend that your listeners and you check out Richard Perenia. He, he performed as a duo with his wife, Mimi Perenia, who was shown by as his sister. Oh, I didn't know that. And she okay. was only seventeen. She was only seventeen when they got married. Oh. These are very young people, by the way. Yeah. The oldest. When I did Star Wars and Promises, there was only one of those songwriters who I paid tribute to who's anywhere near thirty. The rest were much closer to twenty. Good point. You know, and they're yeah. young, and it's very much about this was like the new generation. This was the '60s with a new voice. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's mm-hmm. that's what this music was. Yeah. Um, Pack Up Your Sorrows is a beautiful song. I picture him singing it to Mimi Farina, who might have been, you know, m- moody or something. And the mm-hmm. song is like, well, tell me, you know, I wish I could pack up, well, pack up your sorrows, give them to me. I know how to use them, is what the lyric yeah. says. And yeah. to me, that means I know how to use it. I'll write a song for you. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's how he knows how to use it. Yeah. Like, and that, see what I mean? It's like, it's about the process of songwriting. Mm-hmm. Like, he tells his wife, I, you know, and if somehow you could pack up your sorrows and give them all to me, I would use them. You know, I know mm-hmm. how to use them. Yeah. Give, and, and that's what he means. He means yeah. I would write a song for you. Yeah. It's beautiful. There's so many. Be- beautiful I mean, you're, the version of Sunday Morning that's on there from the Velvet Underground is also great. Sunday morning brings the dawning. Just a restless feeling by my side Early dawning, Sunday morning It's just the wasted years so close behind Watch out, the world's behind you There's always someone There's a lot of really beautiful tunes on that on that album. What are you working Thank on you. today? Do you have something else in the hopper, or is there something coming up? Oh yeah, well, I've, I've, been, I've been working on new music. I also have my second book, which will be hopefully. I'm, I'm just starting it now, but 
that's going to be in the worst. And it's called Music and Revolution, Greenwich Village in the 1960s. It's a, it's right. a historical book. Okay. Then, let's see, what I've got is that, uh, of course, you know, I don't know if you knew, but right before the COVID-19 outbreak, uh, the bongos were starting to do some reunion performances. Really? Are, yeah, nice. so we just did uh, Atlanta, Georgia on February 20, 20th or 21st. And now we're on hold, but we'll be back. Great. And I've also been doing a show that you might like, going by what we just talked about in this uh-huh. interview. I do a duo show with Glenn Mercer of the Feelies. Really? And uh-huh. we do a show, it's, we call it Hazy Cosmic Jive. Uh-huh. And it's, uh, it, it, it leans heavily on David Bowie, uh, Ziggy Stardust, period. And the, out, the sort of the outshoots of that, like uh, 80s uh, Raw Power album, Blue Reach, Transformer, also Roxy Music and the first Brian Eno mm. albums. So, so good. We do it. We do it. So it's almost like for me the next step after Sorrows and Promises, because now it's like looking at the seven, the seventies. Yeah. And the, the kind of experimentation that those artists I just mentioned, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what they were doing a decade after the Greenwich Village scene. That sounds fantastic. Oh. So we're doing that in certain uh, select cities. We'll be in. We'll be. We just played Philadelphia, but we'll, we'll be back there in the fall, and a few other cities around the country. Okay. Well, hopefully if you make it out west to Denver, I'll be in the front row because I've I never seen that. you live and I've, I oh. would love to do that. Yeah. Well, you know, I can, half of what I do is the live performance. Like I love the recording and I, mm-hmm. as I said, I love the process, but live performance is really like my lifeblood. I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. How are you holding up with uh, COVID and being quarantined? That can't be easy for anyone like you. It's not my style to be locked yeah. up like this. It, but you know, I'm I'm abiding by the CDC uh, mm-hmm. the CDC uh, uh, rules, yeah. and I'm staying indoors, and uh, I don't want to spread it or get yeah. it. And I hope everyone's doing that. But yeah. you know, it's hard because I'm a very active person. Like I do, I I like to work out at the gym and things mm-hmm. like that. And so it's it's been uh, it's been it's rough, but yeah. it's a necessity. It's a yeah. necessity. It's the only way to stop it is yeah, by it not is. spreading it. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's so true. Okay, two last questions. Number one, I, you know, when I was getting ready to talk to you and I'm reading all the different things that you've done, I was getting really overwhelmed because you do so many things. You teach, you're on, you see, it seems yeah. like you're on the board of all this stuff. You're organizing yeah. concerts. What is your, when you wake up in the morning, what is your primary responsibility that day? Is it whatever you <laughs> choose? What is it that, you know, is your main thing? What's your main gig today? Well, it falls into place usually. As you know, right now, everything is on hold. But right. when uh, in normal settings, each day has its theme. Like it, it, if it's a, a Grammys uh, Recording Academy meeting day or if we have some events or I often uh, host events, mm-hmm. you know, there's a schedule that falls into place. And uh, it happens for all the different organizations I work with and also with the, with the concert schedule. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it, it works itself out. It's just a bit, it's a bit of planning, but each day's different. Yeah. Each day has a different kind of theme and, and a different, uh, I, I approach, I don't try to do everything all at once, in other words. Okay. You know, I, 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 I schedule things so that I can do all of these different things. I love all of them. Mm. You know, I have a very much devotion for the, my work at Anthology Film Archives. Yeah, I love that organ. That was Jonas Mikas's organization, and I, I want to, I want to. He passed away last year, but I want to continue his work there. Mm-hmm. And um, I love the Recording Academy, and it, what we do—not just the award show, but all during the year with Music yeah. Cares, and with the advocacy that I mentioned before about meeting with with the Congress to mm-hmm. change laws in the in favor of artists. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, we do a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and it sounds like I that. like to always also my creative time every day as much as possible to write some music. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Yeah. Okay. Tell me a Tiny Tim story. Somewhere, uh-huh. I, I'm fuzzy on where it is, but somewhere in your, the early stages of your career, you worked yeah. with him or knew him or whatever. Tell us a Tiny yeah, yeah. Tim story. Well, I worked with Tiny Tim. And I, I, uh, it's, it's a big part of my life. This was really? meeting him, learning from him about what fame is. Mm. because he had it and lost it and yeah. was quite okay with it. And I learned about what that meant. Like he was at one point in the late 60s, he was one of the most famous and the highest paid entertainer in the world. Wow. You know, wow. for a brief yeah. moment in time. Yeah. And when he got married on The Tonight Show, it was the, sing- the second largest television viewing audience other than the moon landing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet, a few years later, several years later, but not that long, less than a decade later, I met him, and he was playing at a roadside bar in Tampa, Florida. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. And, you know, he was great, and he didn't care if he played for 10 people or 10,000 people. He would put on a show, and I was underage. I, I went with two friends. We could not go in the club to see him. It was a nightclub. We couldn't, mm-hmm. They wouldn't let us in, so he performed the entire show for us in his hotel room. Mm. Wow. Really? And yeah. And it was so charming. And then I I said, you know, I was 16 and I said, you know, Mr. I called him Mr. Tim that later became (laughs) tiny, but Mr. Tim, I said, I'm a record producer. I'd like to produce some recordings with you. Can I bring my equipment tomorrow? And I started a process of bringing my professional gear to record him in the hotel room, uh, telling Mm -hmm. stories and singing. And then later we went to the recording studio and made an album. And you can find it on the, on YouTube and, and Spotify, all the all the sources. Okay. Uh, it's called uh, Rare Moments, Volume One. Uh, I've never seen a straight banana. I've never seen a straight banana. Oh, how I'm trying! I've seen lots of funny things in my time, but there's one thing I've been trying hard to get. For years and years and years I've kept on searching But I haven't had the luck to see one yet Although I haven't seen one, you all know the thing I mean And now I'm going to tell you what it is I haven't seen I've never, 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 never seen a straight banana I've searched quite a but I must admit, they're even curved when they are served in my banana split. I have seen them by the Kylos, on the Delaware and Lackawanna. But I've never, 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 I've never seen a straight banana. Oh, how much I've been yearning to see that straight banana. But unfortunately, I've had no luck. In fact, I recall when I was in Alaska. It's the time of the album. And that was recorded in the 70s in Tampa, Florida when I was 16 years old. It's really brilliant stuff. Okay, last question. You've seen and done so much, and you've interacted with all of your heroes, who just coincidentally happen to be a lot of my heroes as well. When you look back... You're on you're on quarantine like the rest of us, and you sit in your apartment there, and you think, I cannot believe the life that I've had. What memory 
that you can tell that you're comfortable telling us leaps to the top as just being the most unbelievable thing? What's your favorite oh, wow. memory of all of this? Well, I, you know, it, I can't, I can't really just pinpoint one, mm. you know, working with Tony, I can, can I, I can tell you a few that pop sure, up to the top please, please. is, uh, is working with Tony Visconti, mm -hmm. uh, in the studio and it's, uh, performing for the first time at Carnegie Hall mm. and also performing at the Hollywood Bowl. I produced a tribute to Peggy Lee. That was mm -hmm. a total thrill for me to have the LA Philharmonic and to have such a huge production of a, uh, to pay tribute to an artist I loved. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but there are others. I mean, I, I was thrilled just last year to perform in Central Park to do Sorrows and Promises as a concert with mm -hmm. so many of the original artists of the 60s, including Jose Feliciano Ooh, and nice. John Sebastian and yeah. Maria Maldar. I mean, just to look around that stage and see so many of my childhood heroes yeah. performing with me was an absolute thrill. Yeah. So I, I can't pinpoint one. I just I'm so grateful for all these yeah. opportunities that I've had and. I've been fortunate to work with the best of the best. Yeah, you really have. You really have. Well, uh, thank you for all the good you've put it in the world, Richard, because it means a lot to me. It's uh, it's just unassailably great quality music, all of it. And thank you. Um, I'm very grateful for what you've done in your life for the rest of thank us. Thank you so much. I really yes. appreciate that, John. I really, really do. You bet. All right, there you have it. Richard Barone. I love that conversation. Love it. I <laughs> I would love to live his life and know his the same people he knows. And just, like I said, think about that. You grow up with dreams. You're a kid and you think, I want to be like that. I want to know those people. I want to interact with these people. And then you make it all happen. That is miraculous. I am so jealous of people like that. Anyway, I, want, I thought we should close it out with one more song off that Glow album that featured Tony Visconti. Tony co-wrote and produced this song. It's called Sanctified. It's so good. Uh, anyway, thank you, Richard, for talking with me. And I hope you guys, if you didn't know Richard or the Bongos, I hope you heard a lot of stuff in here that you like and you'll go look for and check out yourself. It is so good. Guys, it's election day. Is everyone as exhausted as I am? My gosh, hopefully this thing's going to be over soon and hopefully it's going to be over in the right way. We'll just leave it at that. Next week's guest is another producer. We got, a, we got three or four more producers coming up on the agenda. So next week we go back to another producer, a British guy who worked with tons of Australian artists in the 80s and 90s. He's still working very uh, actively today. This is an interesting one because I had this huge list of bands that I wanted to ask him about and we talked so long, but we only got through a few of them. So anyway, this some great details on bands you'll know in this one. I think you're all gonna enjoy this. Come back next week. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. I'm so glad we get to do this together. Also, in case you didn't listen to the Andy Ross bonus episode, we have two Andy Ross CDs that we're giving away to Tier 1 Patreon members. Just go in there and sign up. The link is in this description. It's in all of our show descriptions. You sign up for the monthly $2 a month thing, set it and forget it. That puts you in uh, the running to win any and all swag that we have. I will be making this, uh, we'll be picking it on Sunday. So get on Patreon and send us a message or let us know that you're interested and we'll put you in the running. And uh, you guys know how to find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Okay? Thanks, everybody. We love you.